Hello, my name is Ben Lee. I'm a singer-songwriter, producer, professional adventurer. Here we are, dudes. Welcome to the next episode of Introducing with me. My name's Tim Blackwell. Uh, and I knew it. You'd love Dermot Kennedy. You fell in love with the accent. That's the worst Irish accent ever. Uh, but you did. You fell in love with the accent. You fell in love with him. It's hard not to. Uh, it's time to introduce you to someone I reckon most of you already know. Ben Lee. He's back and he's fun. The new album is out August 19. Look, he's back home. A lot of people introduced to him for the first time or maybe reintroduced to him um, during the pandemic because his tunes catch my disease and we're all in this together got a brand new lease on life did he like that or not we'll chat about that uh also from being a misunderstood bloke to entering the mainstream over 30 years in the business he must be playing the game right we'll talk about that very soon so uh and now he deals with being a parent that gets high also the name of one of the songs, uh, as well as all his mates starring in a brand new video for that song. And he talks about why TikTok is for him. Look, this guy needs no further introduction. Please sit back, enjoy. Unless you're driving, of course. Ben Lee. Lift the room. Push your pull. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're at your record company now, so is this where you kind of live when you're working? Yeah, I mean, qualifying it as my record company is like, it's a stretch. I mean, I'm doing well, but you you know, it's like one step at a time. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's look, it's so funny because I've been on... um, I've been on indie labels, I've put stuff out myself, I've been on majors, I've... It's... There's no right answer to how to navigate through the music industry, and a lot of it is just about having people connecting with people who understand where you want to go at any given moment. And that can work on any level. And it, for right now, this has just been like an incredible team to kind of entering this era of my career. Yeah. Well, well let's talk about that. What, what is the main difference then um, from, as you said, being an independent and, and really having to do all, all the hard yards yourself to coming to a nice big shiny company that's gonna take you in the direction that you want to go like is it is it a huge difference or just yeah I mean there's obvious things like you know there's different types of I mean everything is still has restrictions to it like it's not like maybe if you're Beyonce you sign somewhere and you have a blank check to do whatever you want but you're basically still working within you know an allocation of resources to make stuff happen Mm. and there is different projects require different um different amounts of capital to make it work, you know? And I knew for this one, uh, I wanted cool videos. Yes. Um, and that was something that it cost money to do. And I also knew that like there was, my career has been through an interesting thing the last few years with sort of a reconnection of the audience, and the general public with some of my older work through the pandemic and stuff. So I knew there was going to be a set of sort of ears and eyes on whatever I did next. So it was just about kind of like seeing that as an opportunity and saying like, Hey, look, this is actually a chance to almost like reintroduce myself and contextualize my history in terms of where I'm standing now. 
So it's like in that ways, in that way, you kind of like having a team to kind of figure that out together with is really great. So you touched on that catch my disease through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What did that mean <laughs> for you as far as your song back in back in our in our faces again and, and with a in a whole different. Well, 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 a whole different set of meanings. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Catch My Disease and We're All In This Together, it was the two of them. Oh, that's right, yeah. I think it was the, the fact that two of them represented two sides of who I am too. Yeah. One which is cheeky. Yes. And the other which is earnest and loving and supportive, but both really positive, you know? like, And I do think people need a positive vibe yeah. at the moment. At this current time of history, it's nice to comfort ourselves with hope and positivity, but not delusion, like not pretending something's not happening. So, so it was kind of, yeah, just fun to see that like, I mean, the cool thing about being a songwriter and in some ways the dream of being a songwriter is that the songs will go on to have a life outside of what you'd um, planned for them. Yeah. And there's no better example than what those two came to, that, that whether it was, the punchline of jokes or political messaging of hope and, you know, all this kind of stuff, it was still like the songs took on cultural meaning. And to me, that is like, that's kind of the best you can hope for as an artist. Where do you sit with that? Because I, I remember um, during the Donald Trump campaign and then um, Bruce Springsteen basically said, please don't play Born in the USA. I think that's the example, but let's just go with that. Because the point is, do you believe that once you release a song, you don't own it anymore? Or do you believe that you do have the right still to say, I don't want to be used in that way. Well, I do believe you don't own it anymore, but I equally believe no one else owns it. Yeah, okay. So, for instance, if Donald Trump or, you know, uh, Clive Palmer had appropriated one of my songs in a sense of them claiming that this summed up their feelings about something, I'd have a problem with that. Yep. Um, but in terms of the general public, I think that is not for the artist to decide. Yeah, no, I like it. Well, let's talk about I'm fun because you're right. You are, you are cheeky and you're not taking yourself too seriously. It doesn't feel like in this album. I mean, Parents Get High is the is the video I, I just watched. Um, oh, you saw it? I saw it. Cool. I saw it. Embargoed, obviously. Okay, I haven't yeah. put it on my social media yeah, or anything. Yeah. A lot of nice cameos in there. Are yeah. they all mates that you called upon? or Because it's a lot of different cameos. Yeah. So well, Megan Washington's on there and, yeah. um, and Thelma Plum. Yeah, Thelma Plum. Um, Abby Chatfield, um, Darren Hayes, yeah, Darren Anderson. Hayes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all kinds of people. <laughs> I mean, I sort of see it as like, I've always been interested in curation, like cultural curation, you know, like from coming into the way I, my career started was with the Beastie Boys and Sonic Youth vouching for me, yes. basically. And they were both cultural curators, those bands. They both took really seriously the fact they had a platform and they were party hosts, you know what I mean? They were kind of like, hey, let me tell you what we think's cool. If you want to follow the breadcrumbs, you can go into these other worlds and explore them. And so that was sort of the model I grew up with. And that's sort of how indie labels always operated, that like you you were learning about more than just an artist with a purchase. You were learning about a world. You were learning about a an outlook, you know, and it could sort of one thing would lead to another. So I view like my type of people, you know, I, I, there's a type of person I like and there's a, and when we're talking about show business and I'd say one of the number one things is a playfulness. And I think people that approach 
show business and the media playfully. Yes. Um, I just click with them, man. And I think every single person in that video is that type of person. Yeah, for like, sure. Not one of those people, when I said, hey, would you want to do this? <laughs> yeah. Not one of them asked me, uh, how am I going to look? Right. And no one asked me, let me ask my manager. Yeah, okay. They just like sent me a video of their face. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, they're my people. <laughs> yeah, they're your you people. <laughs> well, Will Anderson actually, because I do radio, and Will Anderson gave me the best bit of advice ever years ago was he said, the good thing about radio is you just need to know three things about everything, and then you'll just get away with everything. Yeah, I heard uh, David Letterman, I heard <laughs> once say a similar thing about late night talk shows. He, yeah. said, he said, there's two rules. When someone says something um, kind of funny, laugh really hard and when someone says something not funny laugh a little bit right <laughs> good to know <laughs> um, tell me about parents get high because you're a parent I'm a parent um, are you coming at it from you're telling your children that um, you get high or is it because you watched your parents get high well, or a bit of both I think it's about that whole <laughs> yeah. thing it's about like the fact that if you look at human civilization every single culture I think with the exception of Inuit culture because there was basically no vegetation yep. has had mind altering substances so as much as we try and like impose a morality and all this type of stuff on it, there is something innate to what human beings are that involves us wanting to explore consciousness. And that doesn't end when you have kids, <coughs> despite what like- Sometimes it makes of, you want to do it more. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> despite what the 1950s sort of image of suburbia tells you that it's meant, then you become mature. Yeah. And I, I sort of like the idea of taking out any type of like, there are obviously conversations about trauma to do with abuse that happens in homes and all that type yeah. of stuff. And But but in general, yeah. I would say kids sort of look at their parents, even just having a couple beers and going, what's going on there? What is that? Yeah. There's something going on that I don't understand. And I'm curious about what is it? And I thought it's kind of fun to write a song that asks the question, what makes your parents get high and doesn't answer it yeah. <laughs> because it's a question we don't really know the answer no. to. <laughs> but I find myself like, as a parent, I go, well, I try and shield my kids from that. So for instance, if I'm going to a house party, obviously you get a babysitter. Whereas I remember when my parents went to yeah, house but I party, do that I went. <laughs> I do that because the kids are not good no, company. No, well, that is true. They're total duds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. After a couple of years. Bringing losers <laughs> to a party. <laughs> but no, the, I was like, I, I just remember sitting in the corners watching you know my parents get increasingly drunk because there were no babysitters like you were just and this was just one generation ago yeah exactly that's true um, <laughs> but, but on the same hand things like you know I live in LA and things like um, cannabis are like much more integrated into suburban life now yeah. so you have kids going oh yeah that's my dad's edibles don't touch those yeah um you know because that's just seen as like it's like that's my dad's beers or yeah. something there's such a weak culture in america though like even just look at the movies like sometimes i don't really get that because it's such a weed yeah culture. you well, would know having lived there but well they're living there but yeah well there's a mixture of like there are still states where it's decriminalized where there's like a hot where it's criminalized where there's like almost like an activist culture to normalize it right and then there's other states where it's so normalized that it's barely mentioned. Like mm. I feel like in LA, even like the idea of sharing a joint is like almost absurd. Cause like, why don't you have your own joints in your pocket? Right. It's like cigarettes. Like, would you share a cigarette with someone? Like yeah, yeah. maybe a lover or something, but you wouldn't go to, a, you wouldn't see someone at a party smoking a cigarette and go, Oh, can I have a puff of that? Like it's weird. I didn't smoke anyway, but like, but yeah, so- Well, you write a song, Cigarettes Will Kill You. So yeah, if you yeah, smoked, yeah. it would be it'll be inappropriate. Yeah, but so it's kind of just <laughs> interesting. Um, but what's really, look, the main thing that's really interesting is like, if you look at California, there's like, 
we've you've had the experiment of what happens with weed legalization and like basically nothing. Yeah. <laughs> there's no extra problems <laughs> yeah. that there wasn't before. There's the same problems, well, the same problems that are yeah. not really related. And no. so it's, that's kind of, that's reassuring. Yeah. It always just, as an, you know, as full Australian just always makes you weirded out that you can't have a beer until you're 21. Because yeah. there's so many other things. Totally. <laughs> so totally. many other things. Yeah. We won't go there though. But yeah. are, you, are, you, are you not living back in Australia though? Because I thought you'd moved back home. Came back for 21, back over there now. I mean, honestly, like, because my daughter is turning 13. Right. So she's at an age where school is, it dictates a lot of our choices. I think there's only six more years of that. And I think after that, our life will be much more fluid in the sense of, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel the need to declare some big allegiance about, I I live in Australia. I live in Los Angeles. But because of school, that's sort of important. Um, um, But yeah, I think one of the fun things about you know, the way culture has gone and like with gender and everything and thinking about things in less binary Mm. things, the same applies for nationality. Like it's funny how um, I I used to feel a much bigger pressure to sort of like decide these things. And now I'm like, well, maybe my type of Australian is one who kind of is here and isn't sometimes, you know, it's like, it just doesn't, I don't know. I just don't feel pressured to like, identify in the same way that I used to. I know. I remember reading an article, it must have been a year or two ago, though, that you'd moved back to Australia. Like, he's the Sydney boys back in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, that's obviously a good narrative. <laughs> yeah, of, course, of course it is. Of course it is. Well, let's let's go right back in time, though, because, so, Sydney boy, were, were you in a musical family or were you the first person to sit up and sing in tune and play guitar? No, I was in a musical family in the sense of, like, historically, like my, you know, my Russian side, my mum's side. Um, my grandmother was the youngest of 20 children. And she was the only girl. Wow. Um, and two of her brothers were violinists. Um, one was the court violinist for Tsar Nicholas in Russia. And the other one was a gypsy violinist called Sasha Berliner that used to like hang out with Einstein and stuff oh in Berlin in the 20s. Um, so there was music like in the blood in that like kind of like like almost like gypsy way, you know what I mean? Like a like a a bohemian troubadour type way. Um, and then when they all immigrated it, and everyone got into like, you know, now we're running a t-shirt factory or a bakery or, you know, whatever, like, you know, immigrants yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the music got bred out for a couple generations. Um, but, but yeah, it's almost like this, there's a certain relationship to music that, I have that is more connected to that. It's like folk music. Like it, it's seeing it as a method of storytelling as opposed to some prodigal harmonic experience, you know? And yeah. that is like in my blood, I think. Because you're in a band young. I was 14 or yeah. 15, a noise addict. Yeah. What was the first song that you heard as a kid to make you sit up and go, this is kind of what I want to do? I mean, obviously you were talking about the historical part of it, but there must have been a song on the radio or maybe a song that your mum or dad just yeah. constantly play that you're like, this is pretty good. Well, or I did just, you discover something? I got really into like rage and video hits and like I would get up every Saturday and Sunday morning with the tape cassette yeah. player by the TV and record. And I remember like the Pet Shop Boys and Michael Jackson and Tiffany and um, just pop songs. But I liked the ones that were like a little off. You know what I mean? Yeah. I liked like the Pet Shop Boys because they were like, and I also liked ones that were funny. Like I liked, there was this song called Stutter Rap by Morris Minor and the Majors. Yeah, I think I know that song. Um, it was like a Beastie Boys parody. Yeah. Kind of, it was like the stu- 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 yeah, stu- yeah. Stu- stutter rap. Um, 
And and I liked just that these songs and videos, they had a kind of like, they were just like little doorways into other universes. Yeah. You know, and I just remember liking that. I didn't equate it with writing songs, but I did, I was interested in the lyrics and I would try and write the lyrics down. And then I would kind of write parody songs and stuff and change the lyrics. So I just thought it was like a cool medium. Yeah. It's funny that when you recorded the songs, I remember recording um, Barry Bissell's top 40, but I'd just record his bits. Oh yeah, right. There you go. (laughs) Isn't it weird? Just learning how to do it. And you look back and you just go like, all the signs were there. Like it's pretty simple. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, So then what about going from like, so noise addict to then deciding you want to do stuff on your own? How did, how did that happen? Or did it just- Pretty accidental. Like I, um, (laughs) I had this, uh, this record label, little label I was on, um, Fellaheen in Sydney. And um, the guy, Steve Pav, from it, I would always make him cassettes of my new songs. Mm. Like he'd already signed the band. And I would like, but I would just record them acoustically because that's, I sort of had the um, the songs I was going to like then teach them to the band. But I would just, I was writing every day a song, at least a song. So like every week there'd be probably 10 new songs on a cassette and I'd drop them down to Pav's place on Sir Thomas Mitchell Road in Bondi and just be like, here's my new songs. And um, one of them was this song, I Wish I Was Him, um, that was I did acoustically. And I guess he played it to like Mike D or something, but it ended up being this, hey, let's put this out. And I was like, oh, but the band's not on it. It's just acoustic. And um, and they were like, yeah, but it sounds good. And then I did more and it was really like Mike from the Beastie Boys who was like, after Liz Fair's record came out, Exile in Guyville, and they had really liked that. And I loved that record too. And this guy, Brad Wood, had produced it. And Mike was like, why doesn't Ben go to Chicago and work with this guy? And I was like, what do you mean, solo? And it was, that period was like solo artists. It's hard to describe, but it was like, there was like Michael Bolton. Yes. <laughs> um, but everything was bands. Yeah. And yeah, true. literally like, and then a couple maybe years. Maybe Seal. <laughs> yeah, but then like, this is before Seal. Even no. I think. Then a couple years later before was Seal? like, um, a couple years later was like Elliot Smith came out. and But basically you didn't play under your own name as an indie artist. Like it just was weird. Yeah, okay. Um, so <laughs> yeah, anyway, but that was sort of the journey. It was sort of accidental. Yeah. What about the song then that changed it all for you? And it really, you know, because it does happen quickly, you know, especially even before streaming, like the, a song's out and one day your life is like this and then the next your life is like that. What was the song for you and, and how did it change? Well, yeah, there was Wish I Was Him, but that was like at an indie level. Yeah. It went on for a few years, but then my first hit was Cigarettes Will Kill You. And that was when like I kind of realized that before that I'd been talking to people that liked indie rock. That was like when I did an interview, it was within a context of people that had Pavement albums and Sonic Youth albums and Smudge albums. And uh, it was like that was who my audience was, right? Yeah. But then with Cigarettes Will Kill You, I was suddenly in like a national and then international conversation. And that led to problems too, because like, you know, getting into like spats with Bernard Fanning and all that, just because like I wasn't used to, I just wasn't used to people not sharing my sense of humor or sensibility. Yeah. Um, And being in the mainstream for the first time was, I just sort of didn't care about it. Like I liked people's opinions who I liked and I'm sort of a little bit still like that, except I kind of see that there's a value in having diverse voices in the mainstream. So now I have a respect for being in conversation 
even if I share a different value system. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I see a lot of like mainstream entertainment is like essentially just like a corporate capitalist experience where like people are trying to push trends on people to make a quick buck. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't care about that, but I'm happy to be, to bring in an alternative voice. Like REM said something really great, which was we always wanted to be the acceptable edge of the unacceptable. Right. And I, and as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's me. Yeah. I'm the weirdo from the underground who got allowed in. And so my job is to walk the line. And then you have, you know, and what's so cool about that is the way it's played out now is then, you know, I'll have artists like Molrad and Georgia Mac and people that want to do that same thing where they want to be like, they want to offer something to the mainstream, but they want to do it from a left of center value system. And they go like, yeah, you give us hope that you can do that because you did it. Mm. And so it's funny when I was first in that space, I was like, what other artists? I don't know who I relate to. I hear REM say that. I'd be like, okay, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's Michael Stipe's number? Who else? (laughs) Who who are my peers? Well, I was going to ask you, did you have somebody around that cigarettes will kill you time that was a a fellow performer or something that helped you navigate that? Maybe it was a couple of steps ahead of you that was like, come with me. I'll show you how this business works. Not really. I mean, that was probably the problem for me that like I, I, I didn't have a mentor who understood both sides of that equation Yeah, um, of basically like wanting to be a new type of pop star, you know, which was sort of my vision at mm. the time. And Ed Buller, who produced Breathing Tornadoes, he really pushed me in the direction of thinking big and being a pop star. And I, he'd worked with Suede and all these bands that, but, but he, he didn't really understand American indie rock and Australian indie rock, which is where I came from. Yep. And so I was trying to walk this line that was like really difficult. And um, I heard someone say a little while ago, something I really respond that in show business, success is made through pulling out a machete and just slashing your way through a jungle. And as soon as you get somewhere, the the trees all close up behind you so no one can follow. And it's kind of true. Like, you sort of can't follow anyone there and no one can follow you yeah. there. So <laughs> maybe it wouldn't have mattered anyway. <laughs> you no, know, I like that. Um, well, well, tell me about the last couple of years. And obviously, uh, and we've been, I've been mentioning this with other artists, like with the two years pretty much off the grid in a way, what... What what changed for you? Did you use that time wisely? Would the album have been the same? Was it meant to come out two years ago instead of now? Well, I finished the album in early 21. Okay. Um, and there was, the, the, the honestly, the real reason for the delay was vinyl pressing. Um, that for my audience, vinyl is pretty important. I'm, that's why I'm spending way too much money on vinyl. Yeah. Even albums I've already got. Yeah, but so you, couldn't, you just couldn't get anything pressed because <laughs> yeah, there was such right. a backlog. Okay. Um, so that delayed things really by a year. Yeah. But in a larger sense, you know, like the way I look at my career is like, I'm not really like one project at a time. Mm. I'm simultaneously working on many things at once. So they come out when they're meant to come out and I just try and keep creative and everything flowing and dynamic, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm fun as, as an album, born for this bullshit. What's the bullshit? I think it's just sort of like the <laughs> creative the journey in the public eye. Yeah. You know, it's like, honestly, like, it's interesting. Like now there's this interesting whole conversation going on about TikTok, right? Yes. And artists who feel pressured by their label to be on TikTok and to create viral content and all that. For me, TikTok is a very natural fit. Like I seem to be made of the stuff that 
helps you sustain a career in a very weird industry that has changed many, many times over the 30 years I've been part of it. So like at a certain point, I just look at it and go, you know, whatever it is, you have to be in this thing. I'm obviously you're, it. You're, you're it. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm the thing that you have to be. So I'm just born for this bullshit. You know? Yeah, no, I love it. And I also love like this or like that. I love the line about you're a Rolling Stones person over the Beatles or something. Obviously, you you said it much more eloquently than that. But but do you think that that's a, there's a, there's a pressure of on people that you have to be a Stones or a Beatle? You can't be a little bit of both. Or yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, and what I I think I hope I try and get across in that song is that. It's everything and nothing, right? Yeah. So in some ways, those decisions are absolutely crucial. Yeah. Because you express things about, like, the way I've done my career is essentially full of a certain type of recklessness, mm. which is a Stonesy attribute. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, a more Beatlesy attribute would be to have been a little more considered a little more pedantic with details, a little... And and so in some ways that detail is important to who I am, but also at the end of the day, it doesn't matter at all, no. right? So that's the nature of living in duality, of places where there are choices. <laughs> yeah. Like, but I also think it's like, the older you get as well, this whole idea of like, you have to have a favourite anything is ridiculous. Like well, people go, what's your favourite movie? I'm like, well, I'm 40. I've seen 10,000 movies. Yes. Like I like... Like 200 movies. Yeah, but at the same time- <laughs> movies for different yes. moments. No, that's 100% right. But at the same time, you also realise that the connective tissue of conversation mm -hmm. involves questions like that. Yes. Right? So yeah. like, like, yes, if we were fully enlightened in non-duality, we wouldn't have even be picking up the mics. We'd just sit in silence for an hour <laughs> and that would be the podcast. And no one would download it because they'd already know the answers too. But we do happen to be in duality where there is an interviewer and an interviewee yes. and there are questions okay. and there are answers and it's all bullshit. But like, <laughs> but we're playing the game because it's sort of essentially fun to play. It's fun. It's yeah. fun to what dance. What else are we doing today? You know, yeah. <laughs> what actually will we be doing today? Yeah. Um, 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 before we go, you're, you're, you're taking the album on the road uh, in June, yep. which is now, if yep. you're listening to this podcast now, is that right? Yeah. What other, I, do I have the dates? Maybe we'll it's get like the It's like from the, I think from the 14th okay. through the 26th or something. When was the last show you played? Is it, or have you been- I played in Brisbane last week at oh, the Tenerife okay. Festival. Oh, did you? Oh, did you? Okay. Playing the Gold Coast this weekend. Um, oh, so you're not blowing the cobwebs off or anything. You're a little ready to bit, a little bit, because it's like- that show, like I had COVID a few weeks ago too. So they, they were my first shows back since COVID and just even yeah. getting lung capacity and all that stuff is like, it's pretty, you know, you've got to like rebuild strength and stamina. And then there's like the, the flexibility that comes with being performing a lot. Yes. That that's when the fun happens when yeah. you're not stressed at all. And it's like spontaneity can occur. Mm. So I look forward to getting in a rhythm of playing more shows. Cause then you can sort of like, cut loose and see what happens. Well, yeah, I look forward to seeing the, the songs from this new album live. I'm sure they're going to be very fun to Thank play. Thank you. Um, before we go, though, the, the, pro, the podcast is called Introducing. Yeah. Is also, can I do one more thing? Can yeah, I just go. plug? Um, me and my wife also have a new podcast well, called gonna, Weirder Together. Yes. That people can check out. Yeah, how did that come about? Basically, like, you know, we got together you know, 15 years ago and we haven't shut up to each other since then. So at a certain point, it just is natural to hit record. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or sit in silence at the kitchen table. Exactly. I like that idea in too. In non-duality, <laughs> yeah. in bliss. But is there an artist that you'd like to introduce us to? Like, you've introduced us to a podcast. Is there anyone you're listening to at the moment you love? It could even be old school that you're like, I'm just loving this again. I mean, I think um, the new Mole Rat album is just incredible. I love and her. people are... 
People are sleeping on it a little bit. I think I'd like to see a little more love for that yeah. record. There's also a duo, an Australian duo called McDermott and North. Okay. These two guys that do these Beatlesy folk songs that are just beautiful. And I'm helping them produce a few songs at the moment. So, yeah, those two. Well, lovely to see you. Um, lovely to have you back home. Thanks, mate. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the album's out August, and uh, the shows uh, the shows are just around the corner. So we can't wait to see you back out there. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>